Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn by permission of OMF International. And we are on Chapter 6, Part 2. As I continued to get worse, nobody knowing it was just a tooth, the doctor wired for John to fly to Kunming. The Chongqing conference was over, and he had been contemplating a trip to Lashio, so reads my diary. He arrived Easter Day, April the 5th. By this time, the Harrisons had returned, and the loving care encircled me. But it was ten days more before they discovered my illness came from the tooth and pulled it, after which my strength returned rapidly. During this time, the Japanese were advancing up Burma, the British retreating before them and the Americans evacuating. The Burmese began to flee to Yunnan, and we at Kunming had occasional air raid alarms. Then we heard that the Japanese had taken Lashon where John had been if my wire had not brought him to Kunming. Unknown to us, the panic of the Burma Road had already begun, and John, as a superintendent, felt he should go west to one of the missionary families in isolated parts to evacuate. None of them had radios and so might not know of the danger. He planned to be gone only a few days and then return to me. By then, everyone dis- was discussing the question, would Yunnan fall? A week later, news came that the Japanese had bombed Pashan without warning on a market day at noon carnage was terrible. My diary reports rumors that 15,000 were killed. Survivors stampede on the Burma Road in a panic to reach Kunming. Somewhere in the midst of it was John. Then on May 9th, John himself arrived escorting Carl Harrison, who had been at the school in Tao. Lietta Partridge, Grace, and Eric Cox, and baby Miriam. These latter had barely escaped with their lives. As their truck was climbing the Sanguin Canyon, the Japanese arrived on the opposite bank and opened fire. They abandoned the truck and the few possessions which they had hastily gathered together on hearing they must flee. What a story of wandering with an infant over wild mountainsides trying to find Pashan, then to arrive and see it in shambles. No missionary was killed, for those stations there had all fled to our stations of Oak Flat, thinking the Lisu Mountains would be safe. Four days later, John left for Tali to try to get other workers out. Then reports and rumors came piling in, one after the other. One such said the Japanese were advancing on us from three directions. They knew they had reached the Shanwen River in the west, where they had fired on the Coxes. Another report said the column was advancing up the Mingkong River from the south of us. Another column of Japanese were said to be approaching us by the railroad from the Indochina to the east. The British and American consuls began to advise that women and children evacuate north, Everyone said Yunnan would fall. Not yet a naturalized American, I came under the jurisdiction of the British Council, who did not hesitate to urge me to flee north. David Harrison was not home, and he was on a preaching trip in the country. In the Kunming Harrison household were only three women, Kay Harrison, a new worker, Evelyn Gibson, and myself. Four others of our missionaries in a China in a mission guest house over the way had decided to fly out to India. The consul had told us we might evacuate to India or travel north to the Chengtu with the Royal Air Force Corps, who were proceeding in army trucks. The British consul was irritated that I showed reluctance to leave. Everyone's going to have to evacuate, he said, and the trucks are going to be at a premium. By staying on now, you will virtually take the place of a truck that should be kept for women and children, even now fleeing towards us on the Burma Road. It's selfish to stay. What should we do? If only John would return. But John was not my source of guidance, and the Lord was absolutely silent when we prayed for direction. Experience had taught me to stay where I was until he did speak. 
but the RAF convoy was leaving early on May 17th. On May 16th, we got word that the Japanese had crossed the Sanguine on the Burma Road, and still there was no guidance from the Lord. Stories of Japanese atrocities to women in Hong Kong and Burma poured in. The irate British consul sent me word three times in that day, ordering me to go on the convoy the next morning. What should we do? We decided to go. We could take a bedding roll and one suitcase apiece. Of all one's goods, what to pack in one suitcase. Dear little Ava kept crying around the house, helping us pack. If only she could go too, she wept. But since accommodations, even for British women, is difficult to find, how could I ask them to make room for a Chinese girl, said the perplexed sister Catherine. Carly, about six years old, was with us too. Early in the morning of May 17, 1942, we three women, Carly, Ava, arrived at the airfield where the convoy was. We were praying for Ava's future. Kay wanted her to go back to her own home. And then the Lord did a kind thing. The RAF captain came around to check our identity and saw Ava crying. Remembering that she looked like a child. What is she crying for, he asked. She wants to come with us, answered Kay desperately. She doesn't want to be left behind. Oh, she's not very big, he said compassionately. Let her get in, sure. That's okay. What's her name? And the miracle was accomplished. Ava had no bedding or clothes with her, but that did not worry her. Sunshine follows showers. In between Carly, she hopped, and the convoy began to move forward. Evelyn Gibson and I, with two RAF men, were in one truck, and Kay Harrison, Carly, and Ava in another, and I forgot how many other trucks there were in the convoy. We had to sit and sleep in the back of the truck. I remember that underneath me was a spare tire and a typewriter, which in turn were on top of an ammunition boxes. I put Evelyn next to the wall of the truck, and I slept next to her. One of our men slept next to me. The trucks must have been small, for that was all they would hold. We ate RAF rations, and when we stopped for sleep, the men had to take turns standing watch all night. Seven days and six nights of such travel on the Burma Road, and plenty of time to think. Dust and rattle made conversation a burden. Out of the sunny Yunnan into the cloudy Krauchow, I had left my husband behind in Yunnan, and Evelyn had left her fiancé, Norman Carter. Sometimes I found her crying softly to herself, and that was how I felt, too. But as I lay or sat there hour after hour, day after day, I was thinking. God had not told me to come. What would happen to me? Then I remembered Lucia's beaming face that last morning. Praise the Lord, Mama, he had said. He says he's going to bring you back. Genesis 28:15 was becoming a worn place in my Bible. Well, Lord, I conversed with him on the way. Maybe I'm out of your will on this trip. You did not tell me to come, but you let me be pushed into it, and you gave me Genesis 28:15 that morning. That I know. Now I claim that wherever I go, and I claim the promise to bring me back. This land must mean Pashan. So someday you're going to take me back to Pashan. Of course, I don't know when, but I have a feeling the Japanese won't get Yunnan after all. Oh dear, why did I ever leave? And oh dear, my lonely heart. And I twisted and squirmed with heartache. As we passed through Pichi in Kwachau, Providence, the convoy allowed us to stop and visit our missionaries there. Sister Wazel and Sister Herzel, German women's mission, were so sweet to us but knew nothing of the war conditions. They were carrying on as usual. We met some Mayola, Treb's tribesmen on the road, and my heart twisted and tore itself anew at the memory of the Lisu and how far I was traveling from them. Our RAF, which is short for Royal Air Force, Men were very good to us. 
a Scotsman named Davidson sat next to me most of the time and told me of the terrible carnage of Pashana's bombing. They had arrived fleeing from Burma at sunset of the day of the bombing, and he said it was breaking the day the next morning when they finally managed to get through. The destruction and the carnage was so terrible. The RAF had been through all the Burma fighting, and their talk was gloomy. China would fall, for sure. The afternoon of the sixth day, when we pulled in the Shuyang, two CIM missionaries were waiting for us. They had a telegram from our headquarters in Chongqing saying that their accommodations and those at Chengtu were filled up. We were to get out of the convoy at La Sien in Xuan Providence and stay with Mr. and Mrs. Arnold Lee until further notice. We arrived there the next afternoon at half past four and were cordially welcomed by the Lays. Almost my first question was, has Yunnan fallen? Why, no, said Mr. Lay in polite bewilderment. War news seems rather good these last few days. It seems that General Esimo Chang has sent his crack regiment down a back road, chasing the Japanese back into the Salmon River and holding them there. Yunnan was saved, and our flight had been perfectly needless. Now I was two provinces away from Yunnan, with no possibility of getting back. Mr. Lay was very cordial, but one could see that he wondered why we had to run so far away. There had never been any talk of Yunnan falling in their part of the world. I was heartsick. My life seemed one wreck of desolation and the future black. What was happening to my little girl in Japanese hands? Well, the Lays had word that the school and the children were being kindly cared for by their captors. Thank the Lord for that. A matter that made us all look sober was our extreme shortage of funds. Friends at home were giving generously, but the pegged exchange gave us only 50% of the true market value. If only we could play the black market, the China Inland Mission would be well off, but that was illegal and the mission would not do it. So all of us were pinched financially. This made my return to Yan'an all the more hopeless. The RAF convoy had brought us free of charge, but if I returned, I must pay my own way back and suffer all those days and days on a Chinese truck on the Burma Road. My heart fainted at the thought. The only thing to do, counsel Mr. Lay kindly, was to brush up on the Chinese language, settle down, and help with the church work at Leishan. So twice a week, I went with the Bible women to the Chinese prison. The Szechuanese dialect was very difficult for me to understand. Where the dialect I had learned pronounced a J sound, these people gave it a T sound so their sentences sounded full of hissing to me. Nevertheless, they were needy souls, and the fellowship with Mrs. Ho was real. The prison was terrible, body lice crawling up and down the walls and everywhere. We had to change our clothes each time as soon as we turned from the place. But the poor women who were shut there had to stay. Some accepted the Lord. The weather, too, was terribly hot, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, my diary reads. Kay Harrison was not as discouraged as I. She would have had come to this direction anyway in a month or so to put Carl in a new school, which the China Inland Mission was opening in Keating, Sheshwan. So she had not lost any time, really. And as a Chinese was a language in which she worked, the adjustment of the dialect was not difficult for her. Ava, as usual, was making herself of value. She made the bread for all Mrs. Lay's big household. The Coxes and Mrs. Partridge had joined us by now. She was also sewing Carly's new school outfit. She was a good little seamstress and could run a sewing machine better than I could. It was a big savings for Kay to get Carly's things made so cheaply, yet so well. Kay Harrison had received a letter from her husband which made us all feel bad. Dave felt that those rumors at Yan'an would fall had been the devil's master stroke. 
Not only had it scattered us to the far Sheshwan, but other missionaries had flown out to India and left China entirely. His preaching band had heard the rumors also, got excited, and all ran home. We were going to evangelize a part of the country that had been on my heart for years, and I had the best preaching band collected that I'd ever had, and now all dispersed. Refugees from the Burma Road are still piling in. Never have we had so many opportunities for service and no missionaries. I heard that John was having a wonderful time in the West, too. It's just heartbreaking that Satan has scored such a victory. You can imagine how this made me feel. I simply ate my heart out with grief. Even my hair went dead until someone said it looked like straw. My diary for June 4th records that Mr. Lay had talked with me, suggesting that maybe I could help in the new school in Keating. This really flattered me. It showed that mission leaders were trying to find a place for me in the province of Szechuan. But my husband was in Yan'an. And my dear Lisu, oh, Lord, what should I do? Never had the Lord's presence left me. Frequently, he gave me comforting Bible verses, assuring me of his love. But I'm a human being, Lord, I wailed. It's a human touch and love that I crave so. And not just anybody's. I want my own. My own. The next day came a letter from John telling of wonderful opportunities he was having. I do wish you were with me, dear, he wrote. He had joined a medical unit. Cholera had broken out after that terrible Bashan bombing, and they were inoculating the refugees, hundreds of them, and hearing their stories, too, of course. Hearts were bleeding and just ready for the bomb of Gilead. Then I began to question, Lord, may I not go back? I spoke to Mr. Lay about it. He was kind but looked a bit alarmed. You were sent here by the recommendation of the British consul, and they are still fighting in Yunnan. I do not see how you could return without the consul's permission, and I'm sure he'd never give it just now. Besides, there are plenty of trucks still fleeing from Yunnan, and very few returning to it. I do not know that you could get conveyance there. But I was getting more and more desperate. I'll bring you back to the land. Lord, you did promise that. Now help me get back. The next day I wrote to Mr. J.R. Sinton, who was acting in the place of our general director those days. I told him I felt I should return to Yunnan and of the opportunities that Dave and John wrote about. Then I had to wait for an answer. In the meantime, another letter came from Dave Harrison saying he could see no reason why Isabel should not return. Still, Mr. Lay was doubtful about a woman going alone on a Chinese truck all that way and without counselor permission. On June 13, Mr. Sinton's answer arrived. He advised my waiting until my husband invited me to return. That was enough for me. The next day was Sunday, and I took the morning off for fasting and prayer. It was no small thing to act without counselor authority, for I had decided it would be useless to apply for it. I must just slip back without telling him. But the main thing was the Lord's permission. I did not doubt that he had promised to take me back to Bashan. The point was when. Was it to be now, or should I wait for two weeks? I went out into a Chinese cemetery, and there among the graves, undisturbed by spectators, poured out my heart to him. I had four different difficulties to lay before him, and the very first being the utter impossibility. Quite simply, I did not have enough money for that long trip. Some gifts had come through, but our account had been very low. And I not only had the expense of getting to Yan'an, I still had to cross almost the entire province before I reached Le Sulin again. And the exchange was still impossibly low. So my requests were laid out this way. Number one, money to make the trip. Number two, John's invitation to satisfy Mr. Sinton. It would be nice to have you here. It might not be recognized as an invitation in headquarters' eyes. Three, 
trucks going to Yunnan. They were very few. Four, I dreaded going alone with Chinese men. A companion, Lord? Within just a little more than 24 hours, the Lord had answered all four. Special gifts arrived in the mail. A telegram from John arrived, urging me to join him. Mr. Lay found a convoy of three merchant trucks going back to Kunming. Ava asked to go with me. The money was the greatest miracle of all. Years before, John had received a legacy. Learning that a certain young Bible student had not sufficient funds to finish her course, we had given her $100. She wrote that if she was ever able after graduation, she would repay us. But we merely laughed at that. We gave it to the Lord and forgot about it. We had truly forgotten all about it. But the Monday after my prayer day, the mail brought two letters from this girl. These letters were written and posted six months apart, and yet they arrived at the same mail. Each letter contained $50. The marvel of it has never left me. The gift of Ava was just as unbelievable. That previous Saturday morning, as I passed through the laundry, I saw Ava scrubbing some of Carly's clothes and silently weeping. I did not know what had caused her tears and did not feel I should ask. But I did know that whatever trouble was, her Lord could help her. So I put my arm around her and whispered, Tell the Lord about it, dear. He can help you. And then I went on my way. When the money for my return trip arrived so miraculously, of course I ran in to tell Sister Kay. Ava, sewing in the corner, heard me say I had money to take me back to Kunming. Now her tears, unknown to me, had been because there was no money for her to return. Shortly after I'd gone back to my own bedroom, Kay appeared at my door. Ava says she would like to go back with you. She says she will go and work for you in Lesulin if you will take her. I have no money to pay her return expenses, and and I will not need her at Keating, where I am going. So if you want her and can pay her fare, why take her? I was dumbfounded. I could not believe my ears. To me, Ava was a rare jewel of a helper whom nobody would ever willingly relinquish. I was afraid Kay might regret it as soon as the bank exchange righted itself and finances did not pinch us. She said, No, if you want Ava, take her. I'd been praying for a companion, but had wildly imagined some other white lady might have chance be, be going back. I had never once thought of Ava. To tell the truth, we missionaries of the Lisu did not approve of bringing Chinese helpers into the tribesland. They almost always considered themselves so much better than Lisu and so patronizing to them that it caused trouble. Little Ava, I still wondered if I should promise to take her to Lisulin. To Kuming, yes, Lisulin was a little different, but Ava begged to go. I do not want your money, she said with tearful eyes. I will serve you for instruction in Bible, English, and music. I want to learn to play the organ. I do not eat much, and I have enough clothes at Kuming to last for several years. Please take me. Well, I will take you to Kuming, I said, but there is Mr. Harrison to ask also. You have been a wonderful helper in their home. Maybe you will not be happy that his wife has offered you to us. He is not happy. I will leave you at Kuming. In the meantime, you can pray about it. The very next day, Mr. Lay got us our trucks. The one we were to ride in was a brand new one. And by paying the truck company a little extra, we obtained tickets for two seats in the cab beside the driver. That meant we would not have to perch on top of the luggage, and we would not be exposed to rain or bad weather, for it was rainy season. We were introduced to our driver by the company manager, and he bowed and smiled and was so pleasant that Mr. Lay commented on the fact. These three trucks are going right through, said the manager. They're not allowed to pick up yellow fish. Yellow fish was a term used by passengers picked up illicitly on the Burma Road by the truck drivers. 
The fares went into the driver's pocket instead of to the coffers of the company who owned the trucks, and the drivers charged what they thought they could get. It was a nefarious traffic. We'll stop here and come back next time to, to learn about their trip uh, back. I am praying for you. I love you, and bye-bye for now.